Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. We're going to take a bite of the Big Apple with the New York Post's Mark Cannizzaro. Mark, it's interesting. Believe it or not, the Jets, losers of 68 of their last 94 games over the past six seasons, are actually a two-and-a-half-point favorite this weekend over the Jacksonville Jaguars. Would you have believed it? Well, uh, they haven't been a favorite in one in a year, I believe, Howard, and uh, so... Looking at how bad Jacksonville's has been, I guess I suppose I do believe it, but this should be a pick-up game as far as I'm concerned. I would agree. Uh, what we have here, I mean, if you're going to write a storyline to the game, it would be the 2021 number one draft choice against the 2021 number two draft choice, Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. quarterback has played extremely well obviously this year both have struggled and uh, you know I mean Lawrence obviously was the absolute no-brainer number one overall pick but he hasn't really performed that way this year obviously as we've seen if you look at the rookie quarterbacks you know it's actually been um, you know Mac Jones over with New England that's performed better but He's also been coached by a lot better coaching staff. You know, certainly the Jags coaching staff is a joke, you know, or has been a joke anyway with the Urban Meyer experience having gone very wrong. And the Jets have got a rookie, you know, entire rookie staff. they got a rookie head coach in Sala. They've got a rookie, you know, OC and in, in, in Michael Fleur. And even a rookie defensive coordinator. So, you know, that that's not exactly being set up to succeed either on that end. Not to, you know kill the Jets coaching staff, but, you know, everybody's learning at the same time over there, so uh, um, you know, I, I think we have not really seen the final story for either Trevor Lawrence or Zach Wilson, certainly this is just kind of the beginning, and, you know, we were speaking to Robert Sala yesterday after the uh, uh, in, you know, in the wake of the Jets last loss against the Dolphins, and, you know, he just said look, it's, you know, other than the, the, the occasional anomaly, like, you know, Justin Herbert in San Diego, or I should say in L.A. with the Chargers, you know, most of these rookie quarterbacks struggle just the way it is. And uh, historically, that's been the way it's been. And listen, even Mac Jones the other day struggled. I mean, he threw a couple bad picks uh, in a loss, you know, in a Patriot loss that was just, you know, they were not even competitive. So, you know, this happens with these guys. And, and I think, you know, if you're looking for a decent subplot to a game between two bad teams, you know, it's, it'll be fun to watch, you know, the two quarterbacks perform and see which one performs better on Sunday. Before this last week, most people would say that um, that Mac Jones was having the best year of any rookie quarterback. But last week was the first time I could honestly say, Mark, that Mac Jones looked like a rookie quarterback. 
Yeah, he did. Um, and it was just, it was a really strange game. Um, you know, I mean, it was a strange game and not just the fact that Jones struggled, but the Patriots, you know, they, they did uncharacteristically bad things across the board. I mean, you know, there have been few teams better on special teams in New England. Obviously, it's a, spe- a specialty of Belichick's, and they were awful on special teams. Um, so, yeah, that was just, you know, listen, I mean, if you're the Patriots, you got to be pretty, you got to feel pretty damn fortunate that your rookie quarterback, you know, waited, what, 14 weeks before having a stinker. Uh, you know, the Jets have, you know, certainly had a lot more stinkers than that. And so have the Jags with their rookie quarterbacks, you know, as has Chicago, you know, which we which we watched last night with Justin Fields. I mean, you know, he just hasn't been very good this year either. So, um, yeah, it was it was it was uncharacteristic across the board on, on the part of the Patriots. As we both know, Belichick prides himself on taking away the thing that you like to do. Well, Jonathan Taylor put a hole in that argument. I mean, I know he got 67 yards on one run, but he had 170 yards rushing for the day, and they couldn't slow him down. I mean, Jonathan Taylor's had a tremendous year, and he probably won't win the MVP, but he's in that conversation. Oh, absolutely, he's in the conversation. I mean, you know, look what he did. You know, again, it's, it's the Jets, but, you know, he, he ran a rough shot over the Jets' defense, uh, uh, you know, on a Thursday night a few weeks ago in Indianapolis, and... Uh, you know, I, I am. You know, I'm in thoroughly impressed. And, and even in that game, he had a you know he had a long run to put the game away. I'm not sure put the game away because the game was put away before kickoff, I think. But um, you know, he did the same thing against the Pats. But I mean, you know, I don't know why he shouldn't be very high in the conversation. I know running backs. I believe it's been you know Adrian Peterson was the last running back to win MVP in, in the league. Um, I don't see why this guy shouldn't be right up there, you know, with far, you know, with, with uh, um, far. God, what am I doing? With Rogers. Rogers in Green Bay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Brady, to some degree, probably fell behind on that in that race with performance um, the other night. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that you know, there's no reason why Taylor shouldn't be right up there. When you look at uh, the the way that New Orleans, I mean, New Orleans chased Brady all game. I, I've never seen Brady so beaten up like he was he was sacked four times but he was harassed about 40 other times and i i just couldn't believe what i was watching but you know these things happen let me get back to the jets game of last week they had lost six they've now lost six in a row uh since the last time they won was when they beat uh buffalo back on october 17th they're up 17-7 in the game and zach wilson had completed i believe his first six passes in a row and then this isn't the first time we've seen it where he's gotten off to a good start and then it all came apart. Is it on him? Is it on the defense couldn't hold the lead? I mean, how would you categorize it? You were sitting there watching it. Well, it's a combination of things, Howard. Um, you know, it's weird. Early in the season, if you recall, it was it was Wilson getting off to terrible starts in the offense and then kind of finding his footing in second halves. And now it's been the opposite. Um, you know, that happened in the Philly game. He looked really good in the first half and then disappeared in the second half and this was very much the same this is not all on wilson by any stretch but what i will say is i think that the dolphins uh did a good job flores is a really good coach we know that you know uh, under the from the belichick tree and they they altered some of their coverages and some of their looks and disguises in the second half and, and the jets did not adjust well to it um you know the dolphins didn't stay in the same stuff they were in in the first half 
you know, in, in, when it, when the second half came, and and frankly, you know, guys were not as open as they were in the first half. Um, you know, where Wilson was, I mean, you know, had, had a good rhythm going. I was getting the ball out quick. Um, you know, they, the Dolphins did a good job of adjusting. I mean, you know, it's hard not to say that the Jets, you know, weren't out coached in that game by by Flores. Uh, you know, and, and I know we spoke to Wilson about it afterwards. He said they got some different looks. Connor McGovern, we spoke to afterward, uh, the, the Jets center, and uh, you know, said that there were some things that the Dolphins did in the second half that. You know the Jets didn't adjust to as well. I mean, you know they all talk about winning their one-on-one battles, and I get that. That you know that happens every play. But you know the bottom line is, it looks like the Dolphins made a, a decent little bit of an adjustment to tighten up its coverage, uh, their their coverage on, on the Jet receivers. Um, you know they kind of switched from from zone to man a little bit, and they disguised some of their zero coverage stuff, which is what they've been known for most of the year. Is a lot of their zero coverage, well, you know, sending a lot of guys on blitzes and I think what they did was they disguised a lot of that stuff, dropped a lot of guys back and made it a lot harder for Wilson to find open receivers to get the ball out quick like he was was doing in the first half. And uh, so it was a really combination of things. It was a combination of Wilson, obviously he's the quarterback, he's got the ball in his hands, but it was as well, you know, a combination of the Jets not adjusting to what the Dolphins adjusted to as well uh, on the coaching side of things. Talking with Mark Cantazero, taking a bite of the Big Apple with Mark from the New York Post. Uh, let's be fair. Uh, Wilson did not have Corey Davis. He did not have Elijah Moore. So those are two big weapons that certainly would have helped. But it's interesting that here's um, Salah after the game praising his corners, uh, Bryce Hall, Michael Carter, and Brandon Eccles, who had a pick six that put him back into the game when they tied it up before losing at the end. Uh, so I know that he's a coach, and he's, you know, he doesn't want to beat up his players, so he praises his corners. He also said about Wilson, which I found a little head-scratching, he said that he is improving. Um, I, 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 uh, would you agree with that? It's hard to see that tangibly. The numbers aren't showing that. I mean, listen, he looked really good in the first half, you know, so it's you got to give credit where credit is due. You know, that first series was fantastic, as you referenced. I think it was six out of six. Five out of five plus six out of six. And, uh, um, you know, he was spreading the ball around. I believe he hit all three of his tight ends. I mean, he really, they looked dynamic, in, you know, in terms of just kind of the rhythm of the, of, of, of the game and, and the way he was spreading around and using his personnel. So you got to give the credit where that is. But the problem to me, Howard, is... You know, those spurts that he's shown are so few and far between, you know, and he, and he has not put it all together for, for an entire game. And that's what the Jets are looking for, certainly in these last three weeks, most particularly on Sunday against the Jacksonville team. That's certainly probably their only chance to win a game the rest of the way, or their only decent chance, in my opinion. Um, he just hasn't really put two halves together, and nor, nor is the entire team, but... Um, that's what's most head scratching to me, and and you know Robert is a very very positive guy. I mean he's it's very hard to knock him off his his positive stance. He's never going to rip players in public. Um, you know he's very very much kind of a you know you know massage the players kind of guy. And uh, you know I, you know you mentioned the cornerbacks. You know I mean I think what we looked at what the Jets had at the beginning of the year cornerback it was you know pretty alarming. And they have not really been getting torched like you thought they may have. You know, I mean, you know, Bryce Hall has been, you know, has shown himself to be a pretty solid player, you know, not a guy that's without flaws and mistakes. You know, he 
obviously let Devontae Parker get that and make that inside move on the game. On what eventually was the game when he touched down on that slant, you know, didn't play that very well. But, you know, he's, he's shown himself to be a solid starting cornerback in this league. Eccles, who's been hurt, has, you know, has been, has, has also, you know, shown some things, as has Michael Carter, who's been hurt as well. So, you know, I think, you know, he's just trying to find some silver linings at this point, you know, for, I mean, there's not a lot to look for. And this team has been, you know, they've lost a lot of their, you know, several, I should say, of their really, really important players. You know, um, obviously, Becton's been out for much of the year in a kind of a curious situation, you know, with his injury. And, you know, obviously, they lost their best pass rusher in training camp before the damn season even started. So there's a lot of things going on there. Receivers have been in and out of the lineup. You know, you refer to Davis and Elijah. Elijah's really been coming into his own, and then all of a sudden he gets hurt. Now he's out. Um, so, you know, there's so many pl- things at, at, at play here. And the Jets already, even with those guys, had they been healthy, the Jets were a thin team. So you take a thin team and you thin it out even more with a couple key starters out. And, and, and you know, what you get is what you get, you know, a, a, a team that's 3-11. and 11. So let's talk about the other Michael Carter who made his return last week. And, uh, I mean, I, I've watched him and I've seen him and I've seen some flashes where he can be their workhorse back in the future. He's a hard runner. He's fun to watch. Um, you know, I refer to Dolphins making some adjustments. I, you know, I thought he he hit the Dolphins, you know, pretty pretty hard on a couple of early runs, and they, and and I'm not sure exactly what Miami did, but they they clearly keyed on him a lot more. And you know, his numbers at the end of the day were weren't great. Um, but he and obviously he's also coming off an injury as well, so. Um, I'm impressed with him. Um, you know, the Jets don't, their system is not about a workhorse back type system. You know, they want to be, you know, rotating three or so guys. You know, Tevin Coleman, you know, also came back from injury. He had a couple good runs the other, you know, on, on Sunday. They want to kind of like constantly keep these guys fresh coming in, you know, rolling in and out of the lineup. That's their, that's the way this offense wants to play and, and wants to, wants to function. Um, you know, I think what happened is the Dolphins stiffened up a little bit with their run defense, and, and uh, after the Jets hit them, you know, early, and did a good job of adjusting. But uh, I do like Michael Carter, with Michael Carter the first, as they call him, because they have Michael Carter the second, the cornerback. Um, and I, you know, I mean, he's certainly been a you know a flicker of a bright spot in an otherwise miserable season. Mark, let me ask you about uh, uh, look this game coming up Sunday. I mean. Right now, Jacksonville, again, like last year, they're the number one. Uh, they had the number one pick of the draft. Uh, Houston's right up there, uh, and the Jets. So the Jets win the game. They have four wins, but I don't think that's the most important thing. I think no matter who you are as a professional athlete, you want to win games. And here they are with two very high picks coming up in the upcoming draft. What would you think if you had to pick a position that they need to attack first? What would it be? Well, I'll pick two positions, uh, and you know maybe one one and one A would be certainly edge rusher um, and cornerback. I mean, you know, I think they do need some you know defensive backs, safeties, corners. Um, you know, I mean, the Michigan uh, edge rusher Aiden Hutchinson looks like. I mean, you know, he's had a fantastic season. He looks like he could be the number one overall pick. Uh, there's a kid out of Oregon, another edge rusher uh, named Kayvon uh, Thibodeau or Thibodeau. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Uh, there's a really good corner at LSU, uh, Derek Stingley Jr. He's a guy that, you know, these are some guys that are going to go high. What I would like the Jets not to do is 
you know, and I'm a believer in building the offensive line, and, and, and this offensive line certainly isn't perfect, but it's been it's certainly improved. Uh, and that is to say, if Makai Beckton is going to come back and play like a first round draft pick and and stay healthy, uh, uh, but you know, if he if he's back. Um, you know, I'd like them, you know, there's some decent tackles up, you know, high in the draft, but I, I, the Jets have spent a lot of high draft picks on offensive linemen of late, and I'd like to see them address defense um, because, you know, I mean, obviously they need some more skill position players on offense. Listen, they, they need a lot now. I'm kind of rambling, but the first two positions you look at are defensive back and edge rusher. I mean, they, 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 they really need that. Uh, they've been gashed this year. Um, I mean, you know, they've, you know, I and mean, listen, all you need to know is look at this, look at the stats. They're thirty second league in in defense. Uh, I mean, they're giving up thirty more than thirty points a game, thirty point six points a game, which is just inexcusable. You know, when you look at it, you know, having played already as many games as they played, but you know, fourteen games. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, holes, you know, leaks to plug, so to speak. And uh, but it looks like this draft at the top is is heavy on some some really good defensive players and certainly some offensive linemen too but um i'd like to see them go that route it's interesting you mentioned that because i'm actually writing my column for tomorrow's post kind of on that whole dynamic of this game that sits in front of the jets um you forgot to mention detroit obviously detroit right Right. now is sitting right up there you know with with a chance um you know there's they're second i believe in 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 the draft order right now but you know they've got They've got Atlanta this week, you know, and listen, they've got Atlanta and Seattle the next two weeks. Both teams are losing records, and this is a team that just stunned the uh, the Cardinals. So it's possible Detroit wins a game or two before down the stretch. So it's not out of the question the Jets, if they lose Sunday, they're they're right in the in the thick of things to the number one overall pick. But there's no real LeBron James, so to speak, to use the NBA. You know, it's a franchise turning player who's the no brainer number one draft pick sitting up there. Uh, you know, in the, in the college draft. But what I would say is, you know, if you're drafting first, you know, that's, that's a position of strength because you may have a team that's behind you. That's really coveting somebody, um, you know, that maybe you, you trade down and you, you, you multiply some of those first draft draft picks, but um, that's kind of sitting in front of the jets right now. I am personally not, and never have been a fan of tanking. I, this is certainly not a year to tank, even if you wanted to tank, because there isn't, you know, a supposed, no-brainer franchise changer right. at the top. But that said, um, you know, a loss a loss on Sunday to Jacksonville, I don't expect the Jets to beat Tampa Bay and Buffalo in the last two games. Right. So, you know, they lose, they lose on Sunday, they're probably going 3-14. Uh, let, me, let me backtrack just a little bit. If you woke up on Sunday morning and I called you and said, hey, Mark, I think, um, I think that uh, Detroit's going to beat Arizona – I think that Tampa Bay is going to get shut out, and I think that Ben Roethlisberger is going to run for a touchdown. You probably think I was drunk. Um, yeah, or maybe eating some edibles or something like that, <laughs> Howard. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, you would be impaired. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, I, the thing that, that's, that's interesting to me, I said it at the time of a hiring. I don't pro- proclaim to be this genius, but when the Jacksonville Jaguars hired Urban Meyer, I said, this is going to be a disaster. Because once you get past Jimmy Johnson and Pete Carroll, give me another coach that made the transition successfully from college to pros. Yeah, I, I, I never liked it. Um, it was a money grab. To me, you know, it looked it looked like a version to me, Howard, of of, of, of when Dolan was, was obsessed with getting, you know, I'm speaking of the Knicks and the NBA now, 
um, when he was obsessed with getting Phil Jackson to, to, to run the Knicks, right? Phil Jackson had no interest in getting back into it. But when Dolan told him he was going to pay him $12 million bucks a year, you know, Jackson all of a sudden had a little bit of interest, right? Yep. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what the number, I think it's $10 million or whatever the number was for, for Urban. Probably, if it wasn't 10 it was close. I think it was 10 to 12 something like that. Um, I, you know, I that guy never looked to me, appeared to me like a guy that was all in, you know. And, uh, you know, he was out of the game because he was burnt out from it. He did have some health problems. Yeah. And, frankly, I don't know Urban Meyer. never met the guy, right? But, I mean, I also have read a lot of things that some people that are in the know have said about the guy and they're they have not been glowing leading into this is prior to this whole scenario that just unfolded this year with jackson so some people in the college game had very very low opinions of, of this guy's character and the way he operated and uh their opinions that i you know i respected and uh so it just looked like a money grab from the start to me i you know shot Khan to me you know got exactly what he deserved you know he thought that you know he, he had this sense that you know, Urban Meyer, years removed from being at Florida, was going to put fannies in the seats in Jacksonville just because he was popular as a Gators coach. Um, you know, I'm a bit biased here. I thought Shot Connor, you know, Con and I wrote a column about it this past weekend. You know, I mean, he, I thought he had a pretty good thing going with Doug Marone there. Um, obviously, they went to the championship game and, and sagged for a couple of years after that, but they sagged because they had no quarterback. And they, they kind of got away with having no quarterback and a really good defense the year they went to the, the championship game. And the final year, you know, last you know, the year before last, was basically, that was a total tank, you know, for, for uh, Trevor Lawrence, obviously. So no coach. I mean, Vince Lombardi couldn't coach that team. So, yeah. you know, I remember speaking to Khan a few years ago when they were in that championship run and about, you know, the way that Marone was working with then, you know, President uh, – Tom Coughlin and whatnot, and just the importance of continuity, you know, kind of with the way the, the Steelers have operated over, over the years, the Patriots and things like that. The most the most successful teams in this league, Howard, as you know, operate up top with continuity. The Giants used to, you know, until the last, you know, the last several years, they've completely lost their way. But, you know, Jacksonville went away from that. Chad Conn went away from that, and he went star chasing, and he thought uh, he was going to put fannies in the seats and, and hit some sort of home run with you know, with, with, with Meyer and he struck out in a, in, in a, in a, in a, as embarrassing a way as you can. And frankly, I think he deserves what he got. Let me ask you this, uh, 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 Carl Lawson, who was injured before the season even started, what is his status? Well, I, I can't say that I know that cause we don't really ask, you know, when a guy's out for the season, you know, we're not really asking, you know, Robert Sala, you know, what the status is. And we've been asking Makai Becton's status for, you know, a month plus now because, you know, his original diagnosis was, was to be back by now and they continue to tell us there's no update. So Lawson, I don't know. I, I couldn't give you an educated answer on that, Howard, but I tell you, I will say this, and, you know, you probably know this already. This guy was dominating training camp, but he was the best player on the field for the Jets training camp. Yep. I mean, he was really, really, uh, you know, but I, I, I know that that kind of injury um, is generally, you know, inside of a year so i would think you know if it's if it's um you know if it's on schedule he should be okay for training camp and hopefully the jets have got that edge rusher and maybe draft another one and then they've got you know say they get they, they draft this kid hutchinson for example out of michigan or something and you got then you start to have a formidable pass rush and then your quarterbacks look a lot better when you got a pass rush right sure yeah before i let you go mark uh 
I know you weren't in Orlando over the weekend, but when Tiger Woods shows up on television, and particularly playing golf, there are going to be a lot of eyeballs watching. And I found myself glued to the set. Uh, I, I, Look, Tiger and his son, I mean, first you got father-son playing together. Not only are they playing together, but they're playing well to the point of where they finished two shots behind John Daly and his son uh, to win it all. Uh, I mean, Tiger looked like the old Tiger in, in, in some things. And I know it's a flat golf course, but he was pounding it off the tee, and his iron play was sharp, his putting was sharp, and his son, man, I know the kid's only 11 years old, but right now he, he's a darling of the golf tour. I tell you, it was a pretty cool look. Um, and, uh, you know, I was down in the Bahamas. I think we spoke after that when Tiger turned up in public for the first time since his car crash. And, uh, you know, he looked like he was moving around pretty gingerly um, at that time. And that was only, you know, three weeks ago. Um, and at that time, he certainly wasn't committing to be playing the father-son, although many of us had a pretty good idea that he was going to give that a go. It's a pretty, you know, low-stress scenario. Uh, the golf course isn't super long. Um, but as you said, and it's flat, and he was in a cart, by the way. Um, but as you said, you know, just seeing him out there hitting balls, even even in the Bahamas, he was practicing every day. He was he was hitting balls, you know, at the back of the range every day in the Bahamas during that hero, you know, tournament, which he hosts for his foundation. And just the fact that he was out there hitting balls, when you look at that, you know, the the, the the vision, you know, the image of that wrecked car that he, you know, that he smashed into the, you know, into the woods. It's just a, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that he's, you know, walking, let alone, it's, a miracle, it's frankly, it's a miracle that he's alive. Let's sure. With that. And, yep. and then it's a miracle that maybe that leg wasn't amputated, uh, which was, you know, you know, a, a possibility according to what Tiger said in, in his conversations with the doctors. And as you said, now he's actually hitting balls and out driving, you know, some of the best players on the tour right now. I mean, I know Justin Thomas said he outdrove him a couple times. You know, Tiger has been really poo-pooing everything since the Bahamas, and, he, and, I, and I heard him certainly do it in Orlando this week, you know, because this was not PGA Tour-type golf course, of course. I mean, obviously, you can see by the numbers, plus this is a scramble. Um, but he's setting the bar really low right now, and he's basically saying, look, I'm never going to be a full-time golfer again. We get that. Um but what I will say is, after seeing what I saw this past week, I'd be a lot less shocked to see him at Augusta uh, in April. And I still don't think that's going to happen. But but now I'm not so sure, right? I mean, if you had asked me from the Bahamas, and I wrote it, I didn't think there was any chance that he would be at Augusta other than going to the Champions Dinner and maybe, you know, flipping a couple wedges, you know, at the, in the, in the a par three or something like that. But... I mean, after what I saw this week, you know, I mean, now the, the challenge at Augusta is not going to be the golf shots. It's it's the walking. Yep. And uh, that's why I don't think he'll be ready. I, I do. I think he's going to – this is a guess on my part. I think he's probably going to err on the side of trying to get much better and, 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 on the, and the caution. And I've said this since the Bahamas. Um, you know, I thought that the, the next tournament he had a decent chance to turn up at would be St. Andrews at the Open Championship uh, in July. That's a very flat golf course where he's won multiple times. And I just think the, the walk at Augusta, and you're talking about practice rounds and, you know, the two rounds at least anyway, unless you make the cut, 
That's a very difficult walk. I mean, our listeners have no idea. It's hard to describe to our listeners who have not been there and you've been there. That is, uh, it's a difficult walk. And that's more the challenge for Tiger than the actual swinging of the golf club. It's, it's the stamina of, of walking. And I know that's, you know, may sound silly to people, but with the injuries he yeah. had to his foot and his leg, that's the issue more than anything. Plus, by the way, oh, his back. And he's had multiple back surgeries, and that had to have been, you know, certainly wasn't helped by the car crash anyway. So, um, but yeah, it, it was remarkable to see. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see much of it because I was obviously down in Florida covering the Jets game. Uh, but, you know, I saw some of the practice round stuff the day before, and it was just to see him out there, you know, and, and you know, and to see his son Charlie, how well he hits the ball is really something to see as well. No. So, yeah, I, I right now I have to say, I, I, I my colleague Ian O'Connor from the Post right. uh, wrote after he wrote off a Sunday that he feels like Tiger will win again and maybe even win a major again. Uh, I can't disagree with him because you know Tiger has something that you know nobody's you know maybe only Jack Nicklaus in the game has ever had. And I've learned a long time ago not to bet against him. But I, I really, I mean, I don't think he'll play Augusta, but um, I wouldn't be completely stunned after what I saw this weekend if he does somehow play Augusta. Well, I saw when he bent over one time to pick up a tee and he winced. He was noticeably limping as he was walking uh, to shots. Um, you're right. I mean, Augusta's not as hilly as, say, a Westchester golf course, which are much hillier than Augusta. But, I would I would disagree with that, Howard. Would I you? Think it's, I think it's more difficult. I really do. I mean, I think it's very, very deceivingly hilly. Uh, the other thing about Tiger, uh, on this same subject, Tiger is not going to. Tiger, is, you know, much like Jack, much like any player, but I'm talking about the, the, the upper tier of players we've ever seen. You know, Jack always said I, he would never play ceremonial golf because Jack didn't want to embarrass himself. He, Jack's standard was higher than anybody's ever was. Right. And, uh, you know, he eventually, you know, obviously when you go back and play Augusta up until age, whatever he was, when he finished, 65 or whatever it was, you know, he was playing ceremonial golf. You know, they all do at some point um, at a place like Augusta because it's that special. I don't think Tiger's going to turn up at Augusta if he doesn't think – I'm not going to say if he didn't think he can win, but, you know, if he doesn't think he can be able to handle that walk for five, you know, five or six days, you know, practice rounds plus four rounds of tournament golf. And because of that, I don't think he's going to be ready to, to do that. I mean, we're only talking about, you know, a short couple few months here before that, that takes place, yeah. right? So, talk about, you know, four months we're talking about here, basically, before that takes place. And so, uh, you know, again, because it's Tiger, you never know. Uh, and I certainly think he can hit the shots and get himself around Augusta. But Augusta's also gotten a lot longer, too, you know, um, than, it, than it was when, when, you know, guys were hitting flip pitches into par five. So, um, yeah, I, it's fascinating. Listen, if nothing else, Howard, he has opened the door to a, a very fascinating, you know, next chapter to whatever he's going to do golf-wise, without question. When if you look, If you asked us in February... When you looked at the images of that crash, and even if you learn, you know, when you learn that he survived the crash, I don't think anybody thought realistically he was going to play golf again in front of cameras. I completely agree with you about one thing for sure: never bet against Tiger Woods. I've learned that. Mark, you have a great holiday season. I hope Santa Claus is good to you and stay safe. Thank you, Howard. Same to you. Good talking to you. Mark Canizero of the New York Post. I ain't betting against Tiger Woods, but I would be stunned. Nothing shocks me in the world of sports. Nothing.
but I would be stunned if Tiger Woods played at a level that he would be comfortable with. There's a difference between playing golf and playing Tiger golf. And it's like a football player. You might be in physical shape, but are you in football shape? And there's a difference. Uh, it's not, it may not be physically demanding as football, but you're talking about a guy that nearly died in a car accident. And you just wonder, just wonder, I just wonder. But anyway, we'll change gears a little bit. Hello, Greg Logan of New York Newsday. We'll take a bite of the Big App with Greg. So the next game tonight, Greg, has been uh, canceled with Washington. Uh, when do you expect they'll play again? Well, right now they're scheduled to play in Portland on the 23rd. Uh, but uh, as far as I know, there's only one person who's guaranteed to get out of health and safety protocols by that time, and that's Paul Millsap. Uh, six other guys, including James Harden, are supposed to come out the next day, but conceivably it's possible they could test out earlier. So we'll just have to see uh, what kind of ro what the roster is going to look like when they get to Port, which, by the way, is one team that has nobody in health and safety protocols. So that's going to be a tough one for the Nets. Well, they they follow that up with two games with the LA teams, the Lakers, and then then the Clippers. So the $64,000 question. Now we're talking about Kyrie Irving again. Uh, when uh, people are going to want to know when, uh, and he's going to have to be on the road. No, but before I even get into him playing again, number one, were you surprised uh, that, the Nets, that the Nets went away from initially what they were thinking? And has it been driven by the COVID and players not being available? Well, it's, it's totally driven by that. Uh, I was surprised because I kind of felt there was an element to it of uh, that they wanted him to get vaccinated. And, uh, uh, and there was, I thought there might have been a political aspect to it because uh, uh, Joe Tsai, who owns the Nets, and his wife are totally pro-vaccination. They've set up... Uh, vaccination uh, locations around Barclays Center to try and help the community get vaccinated and stuff like that. So I did feel there might be an element of that. But they, the Nets insist that uh, it's not driven by that, that uh, the whole point of it was that New York City has uh, a vaccine mandate and Kyrie was not in compliance. And because he was not in compliance, that was going to make him a part-time player. And they felt that would be bad for the continuity of the team. So that's why they chose to say, well, if, you, if you're not eligible for all games, we don't want a part-time player. You're not gonna practice or play in, in just road games. But now they got into this situation where they have an NBA high 10 players in health and safety protocols and they've signed three free agents. They might have to sign more. They've got injuries. They're overworking uh, Kevin Durant and James Harden and Patty Mills uh, to the bone. And so <clears throat> they felt that in the interest of, you know, getting those guys some help, that they would say, okay, you can come back and you can be a part-time player on the road. And it was pointed out to me that without the New York City vaccine mandate, uh, 
they never would have been able to to prevent Kyrie from playing, you know, for any political reason or anything like that, because uh, the NBA collective bargaining agreement gives him the right to play whether or not he's vaccinated. But it was just that local mandate that turned him into a part-time player. And so, therefore, that's when they decided they, they wanted continuity. But now continuity is out the window. And even Steve Nash said it's continuity is out the window under the current circumstances because the effects of COVID are so pervasive and players are getting overworked and they need all the help they can get. So that's why uh, they made the decision to allow him to come back. Uh, Greg, let me talk about, uh, you know, the 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 uh, desire for the Nets to get him back onto the court. But let's you you know this. There's a difference between being in shape and being in basketball shape. So, I mean, is there a timetable? And I'm not looking for a specific game or date. Is there a, a amount of weeks that they're going to wait before they even think about putting him in, in a uniform? Well, they're very uh, uh, demanding in, in terms of the performance team, making sure that somebody is ready to get out there. So... Apparently, uh, it's re- it's been reported that he has been practicing and working out and uh, and staying in shape, uh, but still there has to be a ramp up period. So, <clears throat> for instance, the day after it was announced, it was announced on Friday that he was coming back, and on Saturday, the very next day after he tested the first time, he had a positive. So that immediately wiped out the west coast trip there was no chance he's coming back on this three-game west coast trip so after that then it just becomes a a situation that's in flux it's day to day and they'll look at him they'll see what he looks like in practice uh they'll see what kind of shape he's in and they'll they'll evaluate it but the fact is that when they return from that west coast trip seven of the next nine games are at home so the only two road games are uh, january 5th at indiana and january 12th at chicago so those would be the first two opportunities for him to play but what that means is that from the time that he was told that he would be welcomed back those are the only two out of 15 games that he could conceivably play. So it just sort of underlines how sketchy this whole situation is of having a part-time player. Now, after that, they have a heavy road schedule later in January into February before the All-Star break. So at that point, he might gain some traction and gain some continuity. We'll just have to see how that goes. But as, as you suggested, it's all up in the air until... Uh, they get a look at him on the floor, which they have not been able to do yet, and uh, and see where he's at to determine, you know, when they're going to use him and, I would say, how they're going to use him. Like, will he just jump right into the starting lineup? I don't know. They might be bringing him off the bench. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. Hey, Greg, was there the NHL has postponed games until Christmas. Was the NBA even considering such a schedule? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but it's uh, it's totally in flux. And of course, you know the importance that they put on all their Christmas Day games. Yep. That's a, a big money day for them. 
and uh, I can't imagine that they want anything to get in the way of, of that Christmas Day television schedule. They got five games slated to go. So uh, I just can't see them suspending at this point. Uh, you know, but uh, they don't have quite the level of problem that the NHL has had, uh, but they have something like 70 players league-wide in health and safety protocols, and it affects uh, at least 19 teams. So uh, that's, that is a, a serious situation, although some of those teams, that they only have one or two. Uh, but, but still, it's definitely uh, a growing problem in the NBA, and, and with the way the, uh, the Omicron uh, variant is going uh, in the country, they're certainly not immune, and it'll be very, very interesting to see uh, what happens in uh, January. He's Greg Logan of New York Newsday. Tighten a bite of the Big Apple with Greg. Uh, you're right about Christmas Day. I mean, you got Atlanta at the Knicks, Boston at Milwaukee, Golden State at Phoenix, which is the marquee game that day, and then Brooklyn at the Lakers, and then Dallas at Utah. Uh, you're right. I mean, it's a big money game, and that's the day that my wife doesn't bother me. She just says, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go do something because I know you're gonna want to be glued to the TV set watching all those NBA games." And she's right. <laughs> Well, I'm glad she understands. <laughs> You're one of the lucky ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's for years. It's always been a bit. And and let me let me backtrack. I mean, I put the Philly Boston game on last night. I go back to when yeah, Dr. J going against Larry Bird and Mikhail oh. and Parrish, and you don't have that same thing anymore. Not with that rivalry. No, no. I I used to actually cover that at at that time. I was working in Trenton at the time and. And occasionally covering a, uh, a a lot of Sixers games, and uh, and I remember covering the playoff series where it was Dr. J against uh, Bird, and oh, it was just fantastic to cover those two guys in particular. They're great guys on a personal level, and uh, and great compare. It's uh, that's something I'll never forget, frankly. Yeah, you you said you cut you're working in Trenton. You weren't there as far back as when Pete Carroll was coaching Princeton, were you? I covered uh, Princeton was my main beat, and I covered Pete Carroll, and he was priceless. Uh, if if you don't mind, I I have a little cute story about him that I could tell if you're interested. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, let me let me preface it. Hey, Greg, let me stop you there. I, I talk to Carroll at least once a week. Now, oh, uh, tell him I said hi because uh, he's one of my favorite people I ever covered. He yeah. is, he is a prince. He's he's ninety two years old now. He's oh. still he's still sharp as a tack. Still lives in the Princeton area. Uh, you know, his his wife passed on some years ago, which I, I got to know her a little bit, and I think when she died, it, it really it really affected him greatly uh, because she was a ball of fire and. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm sure that's true, and I know that he used to talk about her cooking and her Spanish dishes that yep. she would prepare, and, uh, you know, especially uh, arroz con pollo. <laughs> well, that's one of my favorite dishes, but yeah, Pete, Pete still watches a lot of NBA, and he made an interesting observation. I asked him about certain teams and certain players. Here's what he, the, bit, the most important thing he came up with. He said, Joel Embiid is a great talent but he will never be what he thinks he can be because he doesn't work on his body enough. 
Well, that might be true. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he certainly has had injury issues, that's for sure. And he's got one of those big bodies that can, if, if you don't maintain it, you can easily get injured. And especially, you know, because he incurs a lot of contact and so on. So I, I'm not surprised that he would say that. Uh, and, and, and he's right. You know, they're going to have to convince MB, you know, about the to get in top shape. There's no doubt about that. So, so I interrupted you. You're going to tell me a Pete Carroll story. Okay, just to, just a real quick one. It was back in the uh, late 70s. Uh, they went to the Palestra in Philadelphia to play uh, Penn. And it, it was really, it was the game that was going to determine the Ivy League championship. And so they lost the game and Pete was upset. He's standing outside the locker room with a group of writers around him and he's leaning there talking to him telling talking about the game and so on and this old-time reporter from the new york times comes walking up he had apparently had been in the pen locker room earlier so he comes walking up and he goes hey pete have you got a quote for the new york times and carol looks at him and goes yeah tell those red chinese to get out of mongolia <laughs> people don't understand that he was a lot more than a basketball coach. Absolutely, it was just he, hilarious. Oh yeah, he's. Uh, I could give you a book I'll full never of. Forget that. I mean, just in an instant, he just came up with it. I can. I can give you. I mean, I, I did their games. Oh, for about. I'm, I'm going to say I did them for eight years, and then I went to New York, and then I got a call from the athletic director who said, uh, after I missed one season, he said, "Why don't you come on back and just do our games?" Because I still lived in the area, so yeah. I, I didn't have any problem with that, but. I, I mean, I'll never forget 1975 when they won the NIT, when it was a viable tournament. And yeah. they beat they beat four ranked teams on the way to the championship. And Kirill says in the postgame press conference after they beat, um, uh, trying to, they beat Providence, I think. Um, and he said, that, he said, we were the only amateur team in the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't leave it at that. He said... The other teams spend more money on their press media guides than we spend on recruiting. Oh my God! <laughs> oh, he's he's. I got hey Greg. I got news for you. He's probably the smartest individual I have ever been around. He could sit there on Sunday. I walked into the coffee shop one day on the road. He's sitting in there with the team doctor, Doctor Tashiri, and they were sitting there doing the Sunday Times crossword puzzle. They knocked it out in an hour in ink. Wow. <laughs> there's, he's one of the kind. There's oh no yeah, doubt about it. I love. Him. Oh yeah, he's he's. Uh, I talk to him at, at least once a week, and um, That's great. I, I said, "How you doing, Coach?" He goes, eh, "He says, you know." And some of his old players still come visit him: Mickey Stoyer, Peter Malloy, uh, Frank Sawinski, Brian Barnes Hopfior. They all come to wow. visit him. Wow. Um, I said, "What about I Brian Taylor?" He goes, "Now he's he's on the West Coast, so I, I don't get a chance to see him." <laughs> but uh, one more quick story about Pete and Penn. They're playing at the Palestra, and I'm sitting close enough to where I could hear everything. And there was a referee there named Steve Hanzo. You may remember him. He had a he, every time you saw him, he had a golden tan, and so uh, and he and his hair was greased back and all of that. And and Kirill did not like him at all. So they're playing Penn uh, when Chuck Daly was coaching Penn. And the game was close and all of that, and Pete objected to a call. He turned around, looked in the crowd, and said, Hanzo went to pin. 
And, and then when Chuck when Chuck got to the Nets, uh, and we got and I knew Chuck from his days at Penn. I said, "Well, give me." I said, "Your description of Pete Carroll." He said, "The guy scared the crap out of me because I could not outcoach him." <laughs> That's saying a lot for Chuck Daly. Yeah, but let, let me get back to the Nets before I let you go. Uh, the Nets right now lead the East by a game in the loss column over Chicago, starting to get all their players back from the COVID. Let's assume that the Nets get back to a reasonable state of health. Uh, I forgot about Joe Harris. What are you hearing about him? Well, he's he's not wearing any uh, walking boot or anything like that. For uh, you know, since he had surgery the ankle, he was supposed to be out. His the Nets haven't put a timetable on it, but his his agent said uh, six to eight weeks. Uh, so. Uh, I think he's a little ways off, uh, but I expect him back in January sometime. Well, they need him because with him, they got an outstanding group of three-point shooters. Of course, the addition of Patty Mills certainly helps, but it all circles around Kevin Durant, as you well know. I mean, he's the best player in the world, uh, but you're right. I mean, it got to a point where Steve Nash is saying, you know, I don't want to wipe this guy out for the whole year. Yeah, he was playing uh, 40 minutes a game. Uh, for the last, uh, I think, 11 games, and he was averaging, uh, you know, well over 30 points in that stretch. He was He's just amazing. He's just totally amazing. But at a certain point, you know, he, he's going to get worn down. He does have a, a shoulder injury he's been nursing all year, and, and I think he uh, has developed a little uh, ankle situation too. So... Uh, you know, it's it's a, a super heavy workload for him. Patty Mills has been carrying a heavy workload, and uh, and Harden before he sat down, uh, I I think over ten games he was playing. Well, he was he was playing about thirty six minutes a game. Although he had a three game stretch where he played forty minutes a game, and uh, and and it was kind of getting to him too. So those three, they've been asked to do a lot, and they're doing it with a roster that you know has four rookies on it and uh, a bunch of role players and they've used everybody up and down that roster and the rookies have played surprisingly well in two wins uh, before they lost the game to the Magic the other night when they only had eight players uh, so so it's been kind of an amazing story and uh, and you wonder what would they be like if they had a uh, healthy Kyrie Irving with Harden Durant and Mills uh but uh, it's it's really it really is going to be kind of a process for them just to try and get to the playoffs healthy and have a healthy Joe Harris out there spacing the floor. Uh, but if that ever if they ever put that formula together, they're going to be uh, an outstanding team, especially because in the past they weren't much of a defensive team, but now they know how to play defense. Mm-hmm. They're one of the better defensive teams in the league. So. Uh, so they could be a really, they could be a nightmare at playoff time if they're held. Let me give you this scenario. You tell me how real it is. Kyrie Irving steps on the floor in January and starts playing some games, and he makes it uh, makes a positive contribution. All of a sudden, he comes back and he goes, "I'm going to get the shot. I want to play all the games." You think that's even a consideration? Boy, that's a tough question because. You know, when Kyrie uh, makes a 
a philosophical or intellectual decision, <clears throat> it's not easy to uh, to move him off his position because he feels like he's standing on principle. And so, for what I I don't understand it, but if his principle is that he's against the vaccination because he thinks it's not natural or he's worried about how it's going to affect his body. Who knows what the thinking is that went into that decision, but whatever it is, you know, it, it was pretty carefully considered and he waited out the nets on the whole situation. And so that suggests to me that he has no intention of getting vaccinated. And now maybe, maybe when he's back playing and he's around the other guys maybe and everybody else is vaccinated by him and they're saying hey we could we need to have you for all these playoff games maybe then at that point that would sway him but uh, he's not an easy guy in terms of uh, uh, changing he's, he's not just going to blow with the wind and, and do the, do the practical thing uh, because he, he feels he's standing on principle, and so it's pretty hard to move him off uh, off that position because then he feels like, well, I'm going to look like a hypocrite if I do that. But, uh, you know, to me, uh, he it would be smart. It's smart for anybody to get vaccinated as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, but that's, that's a political question for some people, and it might be for him. So, uh, uh We'll just have to wait and see how that turns out. But I, I, I asked uh, Steve Nash, well, what's this going to look like at playoff time if he's going in and out of the lineup? And he said they'd cross that bridge when it comes to it. Yep. But uh, it, it's just too far down the road to consider right now. No, that's a great point. Uh, we, we talked about before the year started, the East was going to be deeper and tougher than it's ever been. And I think it's living up to the reputation. But I have to tell you, Nothing shocks me in sports, Greg, probably not you either, but Cleveland has won six in a row now, and they are the, the big surprise, I think, in the East, if not the NBA. That's true. Yeah, I don't think anybody saw that coming at all. And uh, and I love it for Jarrett Allen because that is one great kid. He was with the Nets, obviously, and, and went to Cleveland as part of the multi-team deal that brought Harden to the Nets. And so... You know, I know they hated to part with him because they believed in him and his uh, potential. And now he's really starting to come into his own, you know, shot blocker, rim protector, good rebounder, and a super high percentage shooter around the rim. You know, I think he has one of the highest field goal percentages in the league. And so that's a great guy uh, to build around. And, uh, And they have a lot of other good pieces around him. And and so, again, you know, that's another thing. If they stay healthy, uh, they're a tough out. Now, the Nets have beaten them every time they've played them, but it hasn't been easy. And uh, and that is a team that's just going to get better and better as they go along. I don't know if you saw this. I guess you did. About three weeks ago, Memphis beat Oklahoma City by 73 points. Oklahoma City beat Memphis last night with John Morant. I couldn't believe that. That, I did not see the last night's results. I sure saw the other one. That was unbelievable to me. I think we talked about it. Like, to me, the question would have been, are they going to get 200 points? Yeah. You know, it was just, uh, the, I've never seen a score like that before. A 73-point win, that is, that blows my mind. That's it, it, amazing that uh, that uh, they could turn that around. 
uh, uh, and that Oklahoma City could win that game. I'm, that that might be the most shocking result of the season right there. Well, Morant said in the post-game press conference he was really upset with the fans. He said a number of fans would tell him, you know, why don't you go sit down again? And he got really angry about that, and I could understand it. I mean, he's the best player on their team. Yeah, they beat Oklahoma City by 73 without him, but <laughs> John Morant's still that the franchise's best player. Well, that's insane. He's he's not only one that franchise's best player, he's one of the best players in the NBA. Sure. And he's going to be around a long time. So for their fans to say anything like that, that's just foolish. But, you know, it's fan behavior these days. So, you know, I, I wouldn't take that too seriously if I were him. All right. Well, the next time I talk to Coach Carell, I'll remind him of who you, uh, who you are in covering. He, pro- he remembers everybody, so I know he'll remember you. Oh, he'll remember me because at the time I had a perm and I would uh, spike it out. And so I had this big bushy hairdo. <laughs> and uh, and so he got a kick out of that. And uh, a year after I left uh, Trenton and was working up in uh, Bergen County uh, covering sports for them, I covered an NCAA <clears throat> uh, sub-regional and Princeton was playing there. And I had cut my hair by then and had just a normal haircut. And uh, so I asked a question in the press conference, and he recognized me, and he goes, what happened to your hair? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even answer the question. He just goes, what happened to your hair? <laughs> oh, he's, um, remember me, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he, um, uh, the, my, uh, the, the owner, the fr- my first broadcasting job at Princeton, at WHWH in Princeton, and the guy that hired me, the owner of the station, passed away uh, about a year ago. And so I'm going to say seven months ago, uh, his one of his daughters called me and saying, we're having a memorial service for my father. Can you come and speak? And I said, absolutely. So I called Kirill, because he knew the owner, and he didn't care for him too much, but he knew him. And so I said, Coach, I said, uh, you have any interest in coming to Herb's funeral, uh, memorial service? He goes, yeah, I'll do that. And I said, I'll tell you what. I'll come pick you up uh, on my way into Princeton. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be watching the current Princeton team work out. So come over to the gym, over to Jadwin Gym, and you can pick me up there. So I did. I walked in. Greg, nothing has changed. That gym is still identically the same as when I first left 30 years ago. Oh, my God, yeah. And that's a great facility. I love it. Oh, terrific. And so I pick him up. we, We drive over. Uh, and, you know, he was having a hard time laboring, walking and so on. So it was one of those auditoriums where the seats go, you know, slanted up. And I, we got in at the top and I said, hey, sit down here, coach, and I'll, I'll come get you on the way up. So I, I delivered the speech and, and, and took my shots at my former boss, all, all in fun. And his, his family got a kick out of it. And then I acknowledged Pete's existence. And people started to applaud. And, and so... I walk back upstairs, I come to face to face with him, he says, you had to acknowledge that I was here, I don't need this. (laughs) (laughs) Your story about your hair, when I first see him, I I have a a goatee and a mustache, and and I said, so how you doing? He goes, who are you? And I said, you don't recognize me? He goes, oh, Howard, I didn't recognize you with the fur on your face. Oh, no doubt. Hey, Greg, uh, great talking to you. You stay safe. Have a great holiday season. Hopefully Santa Claus is good to you. Okay, thank you.
Thank you, Alex. Same to you. Greg Logan, New York Newsday. Yeah, the guy we're talking about, Pete Carell, great college coach, great basketball mind, second to none. In the early 70s, when Dean Smith had the second-ranked Tar Heels of North Carolina, they came into Princeton. Princeton beat them by 14 points. Dean Smith said, that's the best coach team I've ever gone against. Later on that year, they played Notre Dame when they were highly ranked. And they had uh, Adrian Dantley, who led the league, led the nation in scoring. Princeton beat him by 12. And Digger Phelps said, I've never been outcoached like that in my life. He was a, is a special basketball genius. And here's the key. Here's the interesting fact. When he went to Lehigh, he majored in poetry. Think about it. Edna St. Vincent Millay, his favorite poet. Oh, I could write a book on Kirill. Terrific story, terrific guy. You folks stay safe. Thanks for taking a bite of the apple on Howard David Live. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.